Jeremiah. Now, last week we looked at Jeremiah's calling, and now we're going to be looking at the state of his nation, Judah, the southern kingdom, specifically in the area of Jerusalem. Now, we are told in James chapter 4, verse 4, James gives us a warning. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, that's exactly what Jerusalem was doing. Jerusalem is the place that was dedicated to the worship of God. But unfortunately, they brought the ways and the worship of the world into it. We need to see the parallels here in our own life that we would stay pure from the world. Now, what's the world? The world isn't just the planet. It's not just the area out there. It's all of, really, all of creation that is in opposition to God. And so that's where the crime comes from here, the sin is, is that they understand what God desires and still they have joined themselves together with those things. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, we saw last week that God called him, that God had ordained him even from the womb. Well, God's got something to say to the southern kingdom, keeping in mind all along that the northern kingdom no longer exists. Assyria has come in, has taken them captive, and so they have a living illustration of what happens when you turn your back on God. What we'll be doing for the next two weeks in the next two chapters, chapters 2 and chapter 3, well, first we're going to see an accusation by the Lord. We'll look at that tonight. Next week we'll see an appeal from the Lord. And so, again, we saw the prophet's calling, and so what we need to see in that, in how God has formed him in the womb as a prophet who is the go-forth, and to speak this word, what God has done in Jeremiah has raised him up for a time like this with a message like this. And so we look at the landscape of our society, our country, and the world. Well, God has brought you into existence for a time just like this. And it's not to say, ooh and ah, look how bad things are, look how godless things are. He has raised us up for the work of ministry in the midst of that depravity. And so we need to understand just as truly as Jeremiah came upon that particular scene, according to the will of God, we come upon our world situation according to the will of God as well. So it's here that we see the most important part on whatever you have been called to do is always in the going, the doing, and the speaking. If God has called you to go, you must go. If God has called you to do, you must do. And if God has called you to speak, you must speak. And the fact of the matter is he has called every one of us, regardless of our ability, regardless of our calling, to go, to do, and to speak. Some people the other side of the world, some people are called to go next door. As far as doing whatever God has called you to do, do it with all of your heart. And speak, we must speak the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's so many people, and I've experienced this in the work of ministry, who wear their calling as a crown, but they never realize that we are to do the work of a slave. And what I mean by calling, wearing their calling as a crown, it's an element of pride rather than a humble knowledge of what God has called them to do. We can use our callings and 
the blessings of God in our life to exalt ourselves when in actuality those things should humble ourselves when we realize it's only by the grace of God that we were saved. It's only by the grace of God we are called, and it's only by the grace of God that we are gifted, and then we need to see the responsibility we have on that. Jesus set the standard. We just finished the Gospel of John, and a few months ago we saw John chapter 13, verses 16 through 17. This is after the Lord, this final... um, Example that the Lord gave to his disciples after he washed their feet, he said, most assuredly. When Jesus says most assuredly or truly, truly, he's trying to get your attention. He says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so what I'd have to ask, if you're not living a blessed Christian life, are you being obedient to the call of the Lord in your life? Regardless of the difficulty of the call, regardless of the direction of the call, it's when you're in the midst of fulfilling God's call in your life, then you will be blessed. Before we get going, though, something important for the church to know. I want to consider what is being said in Revelations chapter 2. And three Revelation. It's only one Revelation, Jesus Christ. But in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's important to understand the obvious. Looking at the book of Revelation as a whole, starting at chapters 2 and 3. Now, chapter 1 is the introduction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we know that chapters 2 and chapter 3 are the letters that are written to the seven churches. Now, those seven letters written to the seven churches, we got to keep in mind they're written to the church. They're, written, they're, they're not seven letters written to the world. These are seven letters that are written to the church, and they're letters of warning. And so we've got to take this to heart. And so that tells me now, since he's gotten the attention of the church with these words of warning, who is the rest of the book of Revelation directed to? It's directed to two groups, really. It's directed to the saved that's in the church because right away in chapter 5, we see where we're going to be. We're going to be in the presence of Christ in heaven. But it's also directed to the unsaved who are in the church. And that's important to understand. Number one, that there's unsaved in church. But number two, that God has given them specific warnings. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 22, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you have to hear and you have to understand the warnings that are given because, well, if you find yourself lacking, you'll be entering into that time of tribulation. And it even starts earlier in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, along the lines of what I said earlier when I quoted John chapter 13. But Revelation 1, 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, who's going to hear the prophecies? Again, it's going to be the church. Now, all that are in the church are not necessarily of the church, and that's the whole point. And so the unbeliever isn't going to receive of Jesus Christ, and they're not going to receive of these letters that are written. They may ooh and ah about the book of Revelation, but this is written to people who are either God's people or believe they are a God's people. And so my point is, Revelation is specifically addressed to those who should know better but have become indifferent. 
Well, this is who Jeremiah is speaking to. He's speaking to those who are in Jerusalem, God's people who have become lackadaisical in their relationship with the Lord. And so you would sit there and you would say, well, I'll be part of that book of Revelation that's going to be found in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. How do you know? Well, then you point to some instance where you made a life-changing decision, and hopefully that's true. But if you become lackadaisical in your relationship with the Lord, you need to go back and revisit, was that really true? Because a constant warning in the book of Revelation, unless you repent, unless you repent. And so if I continue in this halfway relationship with God, without repenting, without stopping and coming back in the right direction, I have to consider, did I truly have this life-changing event occur within my life that we would call born again? So what we're going to see tonight in chapter 2 is a series of word pictures from the prophet that God is using to get his point across. So again, tonight, chapter 2 is all about accusations by the Lord directed towards his people. Now, he's directing them, obviously, to Judas, Jerusalem specifically, but if we just look at it that way, then we miss the point for the word of God in our lives tonight. We need to consider ourselves. So the first thing that I want to look at in verses 1 through 13, we're going to tear it down and divide it into chunks, but a bitter fact, some bitter facts that God, through the prophet, is presenting to the people. And so the first picture that we see is of a good love that was left to fade. Look at verses 1 through 3. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. I remember you. This is God speaking through the prophet. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, or followed after me, in a land not uh, sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And the idea here is, is the picture of first love. Now, we know first love wasn't perfect because we've read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we know that they complained, and we know that they they were even talking about going back to, to Egypt and so forth. But nonetheless, there was, the fact of the matter is, there was first love. Remember, God sees his people through eyes of grace. Doesn't ignore their sins by any stretch of the imagination, but do you see the fondness for which God remembers that relationship? Well, do you remember the first time that you experienced love? And you think back, and you think back for the most part on the perfection of that time, and love causes you to overlook a lot of imperfections. Well, when you fell in love for the first time, it it touched your heart to such a degree that you were willing to overlook so many things. And that's what God is pointing out, and he's wanting them to remember. Remember when we were first developing that relationship. My wife and I, every once in a while, will go back to those old days long ago while we can still remember them and remember the days that we were first forging that relationship that God has used in so many different ways. And so everything was so good and you went out of your way to impress. And so God is, is bringing them back 
And we need to remember the days of first love when it comes to our relationship with the Lord as well. Because we all know people, as I point out from time to time, seem so strong and, and walked away. That's what we're looking at on Sunday morning in our study of the book of Hebrews. Are you holding fast to faith or are you slipping away? And so the idea is, is how God watched over Israel and protected Israel during those times. How he led Israel, how he introduced himself to Israel. Because that's the big part of first love. You're getting to know one another getting to know my wife, this woman who was born in Germany, who speaks perfect German, who, who was raised in Oklahoma and lived this life that was completely contrary to mine, but how God has brought us together. And that was the beauty as we studied the book of Exodus. Right now we're going through the epistles on Sunday morning. When we get to Revelation, I'm going to go to Genesis and we're going to study Genesis and, and, and Exodus. Because really what we're seeing is, is how God in Exodus is how God introduces himself to his people. And they come to understand the magnitude of the God who truly is. And so Israel, they faithfully followed the Lord's leading all the way from Mount Sinai to the settling of the promised land. The ceremony, the ceremony or the exchange of vows that was on Mount Sinai. And they started so well. God spoke the thou shalt's. And they said, all that you say, we will do. They started off really good. But then they entered into the promised land. They were disobedient in that they didn't cleanse the land of the people who were there. They allowed idolatry to continue on, and they even adopted it. And we'll see that's part of what God, uh, the charges that God brings against them in chapter 2. Now, remember the church at Ephesus. We quoted it Sunday morning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. God's speaking of all these things that the church at Ephesus is doing, but he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. And so what is the status of your first love with God? Do you remember that day? Do you remember the feelings? Do you remember the reality of understanding that this God who's an awesome God truly is a God of relationships and he wants to have a relationship with you? You never, you know, we, we, we look at, at, at the start of something and we look at growth from that. We look at progression and, and so, but, but that's something, that core, that's something that is to be a part of me and that I never really go past. How can you go past the forging of a relationship with God? How can you ever grow past it? You never do. That, that, that just grows itself. But once you start growing past that or away from that, you've left first love. And that was the accusation that God had against not the world. He had it against the church. And, and one of the warnings is a subtle warning given to each one that if you don't repent, you're going to be going through the time of tribulation. And so I have to always remember those days of, of first love. Because just as surely when I met my wife and had those feelings and experiences, I had the same thing in my relationship with the Lord. It was all newness and getting to know not so much one another because he already knew me, but I was getting to know him. I was coming to understand so many things and a lot of the perceptions that I had of religion and all were, were either being shoved aside because they were false or brought to fruition because I knew some, but, but now I'm really fully understanding the truth and it was just an amazing picture and so that's what God is saying here he's establishing that relationship right off the bat the second picture that we have here is one of an ungrateful error 
verses 4 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my inheritance or my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Among his people, God is not being worshipped, but he's being abandoned. And there's nothing worse than being neglected. There's nothing worse than being taken for granted. And God is basically saying, I I led you through the wilderness, this place that if anybody else would have wandered in, they would have died. I mean, think of the millions of people that left Egypt. And and how do you provide? It's a full-time job just to provide for your own family, just enough food to eat and shelter over their head. What if you had to provide for two million people? I mean, just think of the, the provision that would be necessary for that and you couldn't run down to the supermarket. We're talking about out in the middle of the wilderness. They need to see just as truly as we need to see that they were truly and totally dependent upon God, and he came through. I mean, we can look at the supermarket, but we're not dependent upon the supermarket or your job or anything else. Even today, we're totally dependent upon the Lord, and we could never forget that. And it's that which needs to be truly the basis of our relationship, not just his provision, but also his provision in the case of salvation. And and you see the reality of God and what he has done and all that he does. And so everything else, it had to go. Because just as I stated at the beginning of this study, friendship with the world, friendship in the world, well, you can't have a relationship with God in the world. It was kind of a concept that when I got married, all the other girlfriends had to go. There wasn't a time when I was going somewhere and she said, where are you going? Oh, I'm going out with this girl that I knew in high school today. No, that, just as surely as you're laughing right now, that's just ridiculous. Well, then it's not very funny when we start bringing things contrary to God into our relationships with the Lord. And what's it going to do? Well, just as surely as me dating another girl is going to detract from my marriage, me being friends with the world, the worldly, and and the things of the world, and the influence of the world, it's going to detract from my relationship with God. And, And that's his point. You guys are heirs here, but you're so ungrateful. Matter of fact, they're committing, and he's going to use this illustration <clears throat> further down the line, but they're committing adultery with these false gods. And, and they're really doing, they're playing both sides of the track. They're going into the temple and worshiping, but then they're going off. And really what you need to see in these false gods, what were all of the false gods? What are the false Roman gods, the Greek gods, the gods of mythology? Again, they're all about elements of human flesh. Each one of these gods is dedicated to some sort of element the human flesh, and the way that they're worshipped is sexual, it's immoral, and it's just disgusting. It has to do with human sacrifice and just all of these things. 
And how can you bring that into a relationship with your God? So we, the church, we must consider our heart of worship before the Lord. And when I say heart of worship, it extends really to every element of our Christian life. But I have to take it, and let's just take it for worship or or singing before service. Our singing before service, is it just singing before service? Are we worshiping with our whole heart? I remember calling my wife when, when, when we were first dating and thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Terry, all right? I um, hope she's home. I hope she doesn't think I'm too desperate. What am I going to talk to her about? You know, and, and then, you know, I'm writing things down in my hand or whatever just so, you know, you don't have that awkward silence and all of these things because, you know, this is something special and I'm building up to this and, 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 and you know, I'm just not wanting to take it for granted, you know, but it's so easy now. You know, we've been married for 37 years. You know, I'm sitting at my desk, I'm in the middle of the study, and the phone rings, yeah, you know, and you can, we can be like that. Far be it that we'd be that way with the Lord, that we would come in here, that we would be prepared, that we would sit down, and we would be prepared to worship God, that the, the time that we've dedicated to worship would not be a time set aside in our hearts, just this buffer between when I'm able to get at church and when pastor comes up for the study. But I would understand that this is a time of giving and preparing myself for whatever it is that God has for me. So we must consider our heart of worship before the Lord. Is it going through the motion or is it filled with emotion? In your worship of the Lord, and you can use before service, time when we're worshiping the Lord in song, is it going through the motions Or is it filled with emotion? Each and every one of us needs to consider that. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God had enough of such things. He says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Why? Because they just fell into routine and they're offering these things with absolutely no heart before the Lord. Far be it from us that we would offer our worship with no heart before the Lord. So is there adoration and appreciation reflected in your worship as you sing, as you give, as you serve? Is your worship of God a reflection of a heart touched by grace? And that's something that only you can make an evaluation of. Is your worship of God a reflection of a heart that has been touched by the grace of God? Remember the change of heart that came across the prodigal son? In Luke chapter 15, verse 12, it says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Really, he's saying, give me my inheritance. And the idea here is, Dad, you're just as good as dead to me. Just give me the inheritance and I'm gone. But then later on, after the pig pods and the whole thing, in verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so you need to see the contrast in these two verses. In one verse, it was give me, give me, give me. He had no heart. But then in in, in verse 19, it's make me. Make me. Make me like the least in your kingdom because just just to be as the least, I now understand the privilege that's involved there. When you understand the privilege that it is to be to even be the least in God's kingdom, it's then that worship will spring forth from a heart of adoration. 
Thirdly, we have the picture of a speechless defendant, verses 9 through 10. Therefore, because of these things, I will bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. And so we have these two extremes, the, the Western culture and the Eastern culture. And so he's saying, look far and wide for these things. But verse 9, again, therefore I'm going to bring charges against you, says the Lord, against your children's children. I will bring charges. And I, I just, these charges that are brought, there's going to be the reality when God brings charges of the truthfulness of them. And when you come to the knowledge of the truthfulness of God's charges, you come to the reality, because who are they directed towards you? You come to the reality of who you are. Again, Romans chapter 3, I quote it so often, but it just, it just touched me when the first time that I saw it in such a way when it says that every mouth will be stopped, that nobody is able to ever offer an excuse in the sight of God. When God convicts you, there's no excuse, and there's no excuse to be given. And so, what happens when reality outweighs fantasy? Well, you have to face that reality, and it can be very difficult. And so, we, the church, especially we who are able to study the Word of God, basically you can study the Word of God 24-7 with the internet now and the radio and all of these things. There's great responsibility. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, it says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with a few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask more. What has God given to you? What has God given to you? God's given us eternal life. God has given us his spirit to dwell inside of us. That tells me that we have great responsibility in these things in the sight of God. We need to recognize our guilt and accountability before God today while it can be repented of and while it can be dealt with. And it just breaks my heart when I hear people cheapen God's grace Now, there's no such thing as cheap grace because we know that God died in order for us to receive the grace of God. But I have heard it before in the past that somebody in sin or whatever, and you point it out, offer no excuse, but their only response is, well, God's got to give me grace, as if God is biblically, contractually bound to give grace. Now, again, what is the doctrine that both John the Baptist came preaching and Jesus came preaching? forgive repentance for the forgiveness of sins and so that tells me that as i'm a sinner and i'll always be a sinner until the day that i die or am raptured i need to have a heart of repentance am i going to lose my salvation it's not about that it's the realization of the grace of god and all that it, it cost and all that transpired in order for me to come into the presence of god and understanding the magnitude of these things. In Revelation 2.5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
So, something to consider when it comes to these bitter facts. Look at verses 11 through 13. Look at the ridiculousness of it all. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? He's speaking, even the people who worship false gods don't change their gods. Um, Verse 11 again, but my people have changed their glory. For what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These things are so obvious that all of heaven stands in astonishment, and even the world does not do what Israel has done. There's no other nation that worships these gods who really aren't gods that have changed their gods. And Israel has this God who is so obviously God, that was the point of Exodus, that they could always look back. That was the point of the monuments when Israel entered into the Promised Land during Joshua's days, that they would always know that this was by the hand of Yahweh, I am, the God who is in the midst of a bunch of gods who aren't. That was the purpose of the... um, the plagues against Egypt. All of those plagues were directed towards the gods of Egypt. So we, the church, must consider where is it that we draw our water of life from? Because again, verse 13, my people have committed two evils. So what's evil in the sight of God? Well, he's narrowed it down here, not across the Bible, but in this particular area for our particular purposes tonight. What are these two evils? Well, where is it that you draw your spiritual nourishment from? Is it from the fountain of living waters? Is it from the word of God? Or is it from the cracked cisterns of human thoughts, ideas, and philosophies? And the problem with the church today in general is that they have allowed human thoughts, human ideas, and philosophies to enter into the living water. And what happens? Well, it dilutes the living water, and the word of God is no longer of any effect anymore. That would be the problem that we would have with the emerging church, without going off into a big um, sidebar here. The emerging church allows human thought, wisdom, understanding, ideas, whatever, philosophies, to influence what is the truth, or maybe this ever-changing truth to such a degree that truth changes based upon times and societies and whatnot. God has given his, his word and the surety of it. I was just reading Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it endures forever. And forever is a, quite a long time. That means it endures throughout cultures, it endures throughout societies, and it endures throughout times. It never changes and it's applicable to everyone. God didn't say, you know what? I never thought about the year 2017. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that was going to happen. You know, we've got to change a few things here to, in order to adapt. No, the word of God, it stands sure throughout, throughout all of history. In Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul went into the city of Athens, verses 30 through 31, he says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. We know that to be the Lord. He has given assurance of this uh, to all by raising him from the dead. So again, man is without excuse. 
And so we've seen some bitter facts. Now we're going to look at a bad example, verses 14 and 15. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Now this example itself, it's not that it is bad, but the illustration is from the negative. And what he's telling Judah, remember the country's divided at this time. The southern kingdom Judah and the northern kingdom Israel. And as I said earlier, he's telling them, look north. They're gone. They, they, they did what you're doing now. And look what the result was. Assyria came in. He conquered them, killed a lot of them, and the rest of them took captive and repopulated the land with a people who are not God's people. And what God wants uh, Judah to understand and to know that was God's intention for Israel to be a son or a slave. It was never his intention for them to be a slave to the people of the world. They were to be examples of the sons of God, of God's people. And we're sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We're not to be slaves of the world because the world will capture you the world will enslave you and the world will abuse you. And so if Judah would have looked north, they would have seen how the young lion Assyria came in in 745 to 722 BC, destroyed the nation, and again deported the people. Now, just to make it applicable to the church once more, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, in verses 14. Now again, keep in mind, these letters are written to the church. It says, verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, Jesus Christ. I know your works. I know what you do and why you do it. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That's what he's doing back in Jeremiah to, to Judah. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's what he's doing through the prophet. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, who overcomes the world, who overcomes the flesh, who overcomes the devil, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's essential that we have an ear to hear. We're able to look back in the past and seeing how these things played out. And again, what the prophets and God through the prophet is encouraging Judah to do is to look north and to see how the reality of these things came to pass. Now he commands the southern kingdom to take warning. Look at verses 16 through 19. Also the people of Noph and uh, Taphinius have broken the crown of your head. Have, now, if you may not know the story, but Josiah, King Josiah, he instituted a lot of good things, and there was a turning back to the Lord. But there was a time when Egypt was going through the land, and him, contrary to God's will, attacked Egypt, and Egypt beat Israel or Judah. 
Josiah was killed in that battle, and so now they've been, they're subject to, to Egypt at this time. It says, you have broken the crown of your head or have killed your king. Verse 7, have you not brought this on yourself and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, why take the road to Egypt to drink of the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backsliding will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me, or the respect of God, is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. And Haggai They've kind of gotten lackadaisical in their relationship with God as well. And this is after Babylonian captivity, and they're restored back to the land. And I'm not going to go there and read this. You can read it on your own time, Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. But God encourages them twice. Consider your ways. Consider. Have you ever taken and looking at your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, kind of third party? Have you ever examined yourself? Have you ever considered your ways? Do my ways, the way that I conduct my life, do they line up with the biblical things that God has been instructing me in all of these years? Or have I chosen to ignore certain things? Were certain convictions given to me by the Lord that I embraced at some time but now have let go of? Have I become lackadaisical in my relationship with the Lord? I guarantee you this, the Lord has not become lackadaisical in his relationship with you. We've got to consider our ways. So we've seen some bitter facts. We saw a bad example. And now some pretty big faults. And really what we're going to see here in verses 20 through 28 is just a series of illustrations that God uses. First one is of a harlot. Verse 20, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said... I will not transgress when on every high hill and every green tree you lay down and plain the harlot. Now, and those high hills were places of worship of false gods. And so again, God's picture here is you've left me, your husband, and you have gone and played the harlot in those areas, the worship of false gods. You have embraced false gods. Verse 21, the picture of a vine. Yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? This would be something that would bear bad fruit. And what is it that they're producing? They're witness of God. What are they producing? Our fruit, the fruit that we produce, is this something that others can come and be nourished of and be brought closer or maybe to health in the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 speaks of an indelible stain. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. This is the stain of sin that they cannot cleanse themselves of. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after Baals. See your way in the valley and know what you have done. You are a swift dormitory or a camel breaking loose in her ways. This is an untrained camel that when gets a time, a chance to bolt, goes running off. Verse 24, we have the picture here of a wild donkey in heat. A wild donkey used to the, wilder, um, used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire in her time of mating, who can turn her away? 
All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month. They will find her. And so again, there's this attraction of the flesh that overcomes the will of the spirit. Verse 25, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. This is just the willful desire to ignore God and to move forward in sin. Verse 26, the thief is ashamed when he is found out. So is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. This was to be the system of ministering to people, the king and the princes, the priest and the prophets, these people who were to be rightly representing God in all of society were not doing it, and it's a shameful thing. Verse 27, saying to a tree, now again, he's speaking of this reality of these false gods, saying to a tree, and this would be a false god that is made, you know, obviously made out of wood, saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. And where are your gods that you have made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. And so the idea, what are they using those false gods for once again? They're using them as expressions of their flesh. They're using them for sexual immorality and so on and so forth. Now, they know that they're false gods, but there's this opportunity for the flesh, this attractant that they're not able to stand against. But then all of a sudden, hardship enters in. And so they're using these false gods as opportunities for the flesh, but they know there's no value when you need somebody to protect you from an invading nation. So it's then that they run to God. Now, if you go through Kings, we're in 2 Kings Sunday night, and go through the book of Chronicles, we see this happening. They turn to these false gods, they act in a fleshly manner, uh, uh, an attacking nation enters in, they run to the living God, and God delivers them up to a point, up to a time. Bitter facts, bad example, big faults, and now a bloody finish. Verse 29 to the end of the chapter. Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a dry land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords, we will come no more to you? <clears throat> Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked woman your ways. Also, on your skirt is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all of these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say I have not sinned. Why do you gad about so much to change your ways? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt, <clears throat> as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. And the idea is, is kind of like that. And the idea is, woe is us. The, it's when they come into Babylonian captivity and are being marched out of Israel and into Babylon. Indeed, you shall go forth from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. These people you put your trust in, they can't even help themselves. How are they going to help you? 
There's only one help that we have, and that's the living God. There's only one help that we have in this world, in this life, in, in this sinful condition, and that's the living God. And so just as the prophet is enc encouraging Judah to do, so us we must do. Have we wandered away from first love? Have we allowed friendship with the world to affect our relationship with God? We've got to take time from time to time in order to evaluate these things so that we would know. Blessed are we if we do these things. And Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come, and I'd say it's well here right now, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We must make these judgments. We must make these judgments ourselves personally, our church, Calvary Chapel, Ontario, collectively. We would know that we're in the will of God because there's definitely no better place to be. There's no safer place to be. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. Lord, these things you have just made so plain, and they're undeniable. But nonetheless, people do deny them, and Lord, we've even denied them at times. And I just pray, Father, as we enter into the next couple of chapters, we'll see the solution to the problem. And we've already seen it tonight, and the solution is to have a heart of repentance. And so, Father, we just thank you and we rejoice at the day of our salvation, but we just pray for the, <clears throat> the maintaining of our Christian lives. Now, it's through you who reveals these things that need to be dealt with, but, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who deal with the things that need to be dealt with. And again, just as surely as those letters, those seven letters, were written to people who were in churches who thought they were right with you but weren't, Lord, we've been given this second chapter of Jeremiah for our consideration tonight, that we would truly consider these things, that we would know your ways, that we would know your wills, and that, Father, we would follow that path. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us. Pray, Father, that you would bless us as we go according to your direction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? This Sunday, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. Um, we are not be, we're not going to be having Sunday evening service this Sunday, but we are going to be having our baptism. Our baptism is at Ray and Maddie Gonzalez's house, a different place than we've been having it in the past. Maps are at the information booth. If you're going to come, we would like for you to sign up. It's not required, but we would like for you to sign up so we can pre uh, prepare and plan for how many people are going to be here. And if you've yet to be baptized, regardless of how long you've been saved, I strongly encourage you to do that. It's one of those points of obedience that as we do those things, once again, we're blessed. God bless you guys. Good night.